So tonight we're talking about salvation, and we have started something new on Wednesday nights. When we're not in classes, we're going to have a program called Point Sessions, and we're going to deal with some theological issues. And so this Point Session for five weeks, actually after this week will be three more weeks, we are dealing with the doctrine of salvation, or understanding the biblical doctrine of salvation and the issues that involve around that topic. And so we started last week, and so tonight we will further get into our study tonight. So we're dealing with salvation. You know, if you, if you look at the world in a casual way, you will soon discover that we live in a world that is fallen because mankind is completely helpless in helping himself. Even at our best attempt to help ourselves, we fall short along the way. Now, society has offered a lot of uh, things to help us. Society tries to offer peace and prosperity, but man is still shattered by sin. We are still shattered by sin locally, nationally, internationally. Sin has brought devastating results to humanity. Man has tried to offer solutions to our own problems. We've offered medicine, we've offered counseling, we've offered therapy, rehab, small group, education, etc. And the list is endless of all the things we've tried to do to help ourselves. But nothing, but there's nothing wrong with those things in itself. But what I want you to see is that, that we have treated the symptoms of our problems and somehow we have forgot that there is a root to the problem. And uh, one preacher said it like this, we focus years on cobwebs and we forgot that there's a spider loose. And so there is a problem uh, in humanity. And God offers a solution to that problem. And the solution to that problem tonight is salvation. Man's problem is sin and God's solution is salvation. And I said last week that it's very important that we don't get in a mindset and think that we know everything about God's eternal plan and that we know everything about God's salvation plan to the world. Salvation has many different components to it. And if we open our ears and our hearts to the Word of God tonight, then you'll soon discover that salvation has many different phases, which each of us are involved in tonight that God is sanctifying His people through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, God's solution to our problem is salvation. The word salvation comes from the Greek word Savior. And uh, the word salvation, when it's translated in English, not only carries the word Savior, but it also denotes the thought of safety and provision and healing and restoration. Because when salvation, when God does his, uh, his work in the heart of a believer, many different things take place. Healing takes place, restoration takes place, regeneration takes place, illumination, justification, all of those different things take place in the heart and the life of a believer. Why would God want to save humanity? I mean, really, why would God want to save us? And I said this last week. The reason that God would want to save us is because He loves us. Number two, 
The reason that He wanted to save us is because it reveals His grace to us. Number three, it reveals His holiness to us, and it reveals His desire for fellowship. Those are the things that we talked about last week. I'm going to quickly get into the thing that we're going to talk about tonight, and I'm going to finish the three phases of salvation. First and foremost, I want you to see that salvation is not only an instant work, salvation is a progressive work. Salvation is also a progressive work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Salvation is not only an instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit, but salvation is a progressive work of the Holy Spirit. So you are saved, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. Let me say that again. You are saved, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. Salvation is instantaneously by the Holy Spirit, but salvation is a progressive work. Paul says it's foolishness to those that are here, but he says to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 states this way, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Again, the Apostle Paul alludes to the fact that salvation is a progressive work of the Holy Spirit. You are saved, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. So what are the phases of salvation? The first phase of salvation is what we call past tense. Past tense. In other words, you were saved. The moment you became a believer in Christ, He removed or saved you from the penalty of sin. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, Even when you were dead in your trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you were saved. You see the past tense? You were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 7. Verse number 7. It says that we all had died. Perhaps even a good man, some would even dare to say, would die. Verse number 8. He says, but God demonstrated His own love to, towards us. That even the, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So you were saved. Past tense. He already saved you. It was in the foreknowledge of God. It wasn't something that God came up with at the last moment. God didn't, come, God didn't wring His fingers and says, what am I going to do? Mankind is so rebellious. Mankind is so evil. What am I going to do about it? God already in His foreknowledge had a plan ordained that He would send His Son. He would die on the cross for the sins of the world people. For the people. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Past tense, He already saved us. And how many can testify tonight that you have been saved by the grace of God tonight? Can I, can I hear an amen? Is there anybody that's been saved tonight? That you've had an experience by the Holy Spirit that you are converted? Past tense. So you have been saved. Number two, there is the present tense of salvation. And what does that have to do with? That delivers you 
from the reigning power of sin. Now get it. You were saved. It delivered you from the penalty of sin. It delivered you from the judgment of sin. But now, present tense, you are delivered from the reigning power of sin. Salvation breaks the power of sin off of your life. You were saved from judgment. You were saved from the penalty of sin. And now salvation, the Holy Spirit is still working in your heart to deliver you from the power of sin. Listen, there are some Christians who love Jesus and they have been saved, but they still struggle with sin. They have sin issues. Well, if the Holy Spirit is in you and you've been converted, the Holy Spirit is still working in you. He that begun a good work in you shall complete it. Can I hear an amen? The Spirit of God is still working in you to deliver you from the power of sin. The Bible says in Romans 6 and verse 12, Paul writes to the Romans, he says, therefore do not, he's writing to Christians here, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lust. Verse number 13, look at it. He says, I don't want you to obey the lust thereof. I don't want you to choose to do it. In other words, he's saying, you have the ability to choose to sin and not to sin. He says, but don't let it reign in your life. Don't let it have control in your life. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. In other words, your sin nature is dead and your spirit is alive to God. You can make a choice. Either you're going to present your members as instruments of unrighteousness or you're going to present your members as instruments of righteousness. In other words, what are you a slave to? Are you obeying your lustful desires or are you presenting your body as an instrument of righteousness? This is his whole discourse in chapter 6 that you have the decision, you have the ability to, to either reject sin or to walk in sin. Am I right about it? Somebody say amen. Can I hear an amen? You have a free choice tonight whether to sin or not to sin. I know this is veering from my notes, but Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1, he states it very clearly as an option. Verse number 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's writing to believers here. Look at it, Romans chapter 1. He's talking to the church at Rome. He's like, shall you continue in sin just because grace abounds? God forbid. Verse number 2, certainly not. Verse number 2, how shall we, how shall we who died to sin live in sin any longer? In other words, you've got a choice. You can make a choice whether to let sin reign in your life or whether to reject it. So when you become a believer, you have to understand that you were already saved. He saved you. But yet, when the Spirit of God is working in you, He is delivering you from the power of sin. In other words, you don't have to sin. You say, well, pastor, it's so hard. The temptation is so hard, I just got to give in to it. The temptation may be hard, but ladies and gentlemen, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and you have the ability to say no to sin. 
You have the ability to submit your instruments as slaves to righteousness and not unrighteousness. You have the ability to reject sin. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear an amen? You have the ability to reject sin because the Holy Spirit is working in you. He's working out that salvation, and you have the ability to say no to it. So the three phases of salvation is past tense. You were saved. You were dead in your trespasses and your sin. Number two, number one, that delivers you from the judgment or the penalty of sin. Number two is the present tense of salvation. He delivers you from the power of sin or the reigning power of sin. And number three, he delivers you from, uh, there's the future tense of salvation, and that deals with your completeness in Christ. You are not, uh, or it deals with your conformity in Christ. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him just as he is. It speaks of our glorification. In other words, the resurrection. At the resurrection, you'll be delivered from sin for all eternity. You'll never have to deal with sin ever again. You will be saved from sin in all of its, all of its workings. You'll be saved from it. You'll be complete in Christ. You'll be glorified. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 9, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 says this, and I quote, Receiving the end of your salvation, end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, Peter said, he said, you're going to receive the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. In other words, there's going to be the ultimate salvation of your soul, which is the glorification, which is the resurrection of the dead. It's the time in which you are complete in Christ and sin has no longer reign over you or control over you. Number so so you're delivered from sin for all of its eternity. First John chapter three and verse two. First John chapter three verse two. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That is the future tense of salvation. Listen, every one of you desires to be like Jesus. You, you, you want to be like Jesus. Every one of you is striving to be like Christ, but we still miss it along the way. We're not perfect. We miss it. But the future tense of salvation states this, that on the resurrection, we're going to be glorified because we're going to see Him, and guess what? We're going to be forever like Him, and sin will be forever removed from the equation. Somebody say amen. Do you know what stops us from being like Jesus? Do you know what hinders us from being like Jesus? It's sin. But how many knows in the future tense? At the resurrection, at the glorification, sin will be removed and will be forever like him for all eternity. Somebody say amen. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So when you first believed, it's salvation. Okay? But he says, salvation is also nearer now. What? The glorification of your body. The time is drawing near. Salvation is at hand. Future tense of salvation, it is at hand. How many would agree with the preacher that salvation is at hand? Somebody say amen. 
Can I hear an amen? Right at the end, salvation will be at end. In other words, you will be delivered from sin. You never have to deal with sin ever again. You're going to be like Jesus, future tense. And sin will no longer be a struggle for each, any of us. You see, in other words, this is what we call justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification. The moment you become a believer, you are justified and pardoned from your sin and delivered from the penalty of sin. You're delivered from the judgment of sin, but the Spirit of God who is in you, He works that salvation out, and that's called sanctification. He's setting you apart, making you holy unto the Lord. And then at the end of time is what we call glorification, and that is when we will ultimately look like Jesus and be delivered from all the tenses of sin forevermore. So it's justification, it's sanctification, and it's glorification. Every one of you have experienced justification. You have been delivered from sin. You have been set apart unto God. Every one of you have the Holy Spirit working inside of you. So all of us tonight is in that process called sanctification. He is working that salvation out. Can I hear an amen? He's working all of our faults out. Can I hear amen? He's working all those weaknesses out, all those struggles that we deal with. He's working it out. You say, preacher, I wish I could stop doing that. Well, you can because he's working it out. Can I hear an amen? Well, uh, I just have trouble with my mouth. Well, guess what? Let the Holy Spirit work it out. Somebody say, work it out. Come on, somebody say, work it out. You see, you're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect. But you need to let the Holy Spirit work it out, work it out, work it out, and always run to Him. You see, justification, sanctification, and glorification. I want you to shout those three words out at me very, very loud. Ready? Justification, sanctification, and glorification. One more time. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification. Every one of you has been justified before God. Every one of you stand, you stand before God as if you've never sinned. He's justified you and cleansed you by His own blood. But the Holy Spirit is working out the, that, that, that salvation in you in your daily lives. And then at the end of time, you'll be forever like Him and you will be glorified. You see, why is this important? Because if we don't understand this process then we're going to get hung up knowing that we got to work for God and work for our salvation. You see, religion teaches us this. Don't lose me. Religion teaches us that salvation is a work that man does for God. But Christianity teaches us that the work of God is done for man. The work of God is already done for you. But religion teaches you you've got to work for God. Work for God's approval. Religion teaches us that salvation is a work that man does for God. But Christianity and the Word of God teaches us that the work of God was done for man. How many would raise your hand and say, thank God the work was done for us? The work was already done for us. So let me ask you a question tonight. Why salvation? Why salvation? Because salvation is the solution to man's problems. And we got a whole lot of problems, don't we? It's the solution to man's problem. Now what is man's problem? Man's problem is sin. And you know what sin is? 
Sin means to miss the mark. Now let me ask you a question. What is God's mark? If sin means to miss the mark, then what is the mark? Remember, Paul said, for all have sinned and they what? Fall short. Do you know what another word for that is? Fall or miss the mark is actually what he's saying. They fall short of the mark. What is God's mark? God's mark is perfection. That's God's mark. God's mark is perfection. No sin. That is God's mark. And guess what sin is? Sin is to miss the mark of perfection. So guess what? I guess we're all in the same boat tonight because there is nobody perfect and there was only one man perfect. His name was Jesus and they crucified him. God's mark is perfection. That's God's mark. That is God's standard. That's his mark. And sin means to miss it. That's what sin is. Is to miss the mark. God's mark is perfection. That is why you can't get to heaven by your good works. You can't say, I was good, because your goodness doesn't meet up to God's mark. No matter how good you are, it can never meet to God's standards. No matter how much church you go to, it can never meet up to God's standards. No matter how much time you give to the church or, or, or give of your tithe and offer, it can never meet up to God's perfection. God is perfect, and there's not one person alive that can meet God's standard. So therefore, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. There is a major problem. God is perfect. That's his mark. That's his standard. And nobody in this room can ever meet the mark. Nobody in this room can ever meet it. So we got a problem. There is a problem, and that is why the doctrine of salvation is so crucial for us to understand. Because if we don't understand the basic ingredients of salvation, we will try to work our way to get the mark. We will do everything in our power to get to the mark. And ladies and gentlemen, no matter how much you try, you will always fall short of trying to get to the mark. And I hear an amen. We've all missed the mark. We've all sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So let me say this, and I think it's important. Man, they do, man does not sin and become sinners. Rather, they sin because they are sinners. So, so people don't become sinners. Let me just say that. People don't become sinners. They sin because they're already sinners. Man does not sin and become sinners. Rather, they sin because they are sinners. You're already a sinner. Now, that's the problem. The problem is that God's mark is perfection, and yet we are sinners. We can't get to the mark. And let me just, let me just explain this. Sin is to miss the mark, but yet there's two things about sin I want you to know. Number one, there is what we call the inherited sin, imputed sin. The imputed sin or the inherited sin. The imputed sin or the inherited sin is by nature. Somebody shout nature. 
Shout it again, nature. You get the imputed sin or the inherited sin by nature. And that is what we call the nature of Adam. You get the, you get, you get the sin nature because of what our parents did in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and because they sinned, sin was passed to the whole human race. Sin was not passed on the race. Sin was passed in the race. Let me say that again. Sin was not passed on it. Sin was passed in the race. In other words, it's our very nature. It's in us to sin. It's imputed. It's inherited. Adam represents, Adam represents the human race. And so when God looks at Adam, he sees the whole human race. You say, well, preacher, I don't, deal, I don't agree with that because I didn't sin in the garden. Adam did. Well, guess what? Congress makes a whole lot of decisions that I may not agree with, but, you know, they just represent us. Can I hear an amen? So Adam sinned, and because he sinned, all of us are born into sin, and our very nature is sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, look at the scripture. Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, one man sinned, and because of Adam's sin, we're all sinners. All of us are sinners because of the one man. That is called the, it, it's imputed sin, it's inherited from our parents, Adam and Eve. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, looks, look at this phrase in the Old Testament concerning, concerning Adam and his descendants. Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 3, and I quote, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image, and they named him Seth. Now, obviously, that deals with um, him as a person, but this deals with him spiritually after his likeness. Seth was after the likeness of his father. He inherited the sin problem. The Bible says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Psalm 51, verse 5, it states this, David speaking of the sin problem. Psalm 51, in verse number 5, he speaks, he says, Behold, David said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not talking about sleeping around before marriage and somehow he's conceived. He's saying that I am, I, by very nature, I'm sinful. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. His very nature is sinful. The Bible says in Psalm 58, verse 3, the Bible says that they go astray as they are born, speaking lies. David said in Psalm 58, verse 3, he says, by our very nature we go astray, we're distant, alienated from the womb because of our sin. And we go astray as soon as we're born. Why? Because of the sin nature. Now what are you saying, Pastor Josh? I am saying this. Men do not sin and become sinners. Rather, they sin because they are sinners. I'm going to say that again because I think it's worthy of saying it again. Men do not sin and become sinners. They don't sin and all of a sudden become a sinner. Rather, 
they sin because they are sinners. You are born into sin. And that's very, 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 very fundamental in Christianity for the most part. But sometimes we get, a, we get, a, we get away from it. And you see, obviously they're not going to stand up in Congress. They can't stand up in Congress and make laws that deal with the spiritual nature of people. They, they stand and make laws that deal with the natural consequences of people's actions. The church has to realize that, that even though the government may deal with the natural consequences of the actions of the human race, the church has to realize that there is also a spiritual problem as well. The reason that there's natural problems is because there's a spiritual problem, and it's sin. We are born into sin. We don't have a drug problem. There's not a pornography problem. There is a sin problem, and those are characteristics of the sin problem. Can I hear an amen? The root of the problem is sin, and the characteristics manifest in many different ways. Can I hear an amen? We want to get all spooked out about the homosexual thing and all, all these things that's happening. It's a sin problem. It's the same thing as gluttony, and it's the same thing as gossip, and it's the same thing as greed. It's a sin problem. And if we don't deal with the root, we can try to deal with the symptoms all we want. If the root is not taken care of, it's not going to... Listen, listen. The reason people don't love God and come to church, it's a sin problem. they rather follow after their own selfish desires than rather to love God, and that's a sin problem. Children being rebellious against parents, it's a sin problem. It's in, it's in nature. It's in us. That's why through medieval theology, medieval, I like to study early Christianity, and this is not early Christianity, this is medieval theology. One of the things the Roman church did, they, they, they understood that there was a problem, and they thought, well, if I wore black, or if I whip myself and walk on glass and, and do all these things to my body, I could take care of the sin problem. But they soon find out that you can put, you in, you can put yourself in a monastery and still have sin problems. Isolating yourself from the world, don't take care of the sin problem when the sin is in you. It's inside of you. So you have imputed, inherited sin. And now, number two, you have... Now, that is... number. Go back to A. That is nature. By nature, you are a sinner. But number two, remember what Paul said? For you were dead in your trespasses and sin by nature. You were children of disobedience. So nature, you are a sinner because of what Adam and Eve did. But number two, you also can make a choice. And it's called individual personal sin. There's a choice to be made. You can make a choice to sin and not to sin. Am I right about it? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 states, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You missed the mark. We've all sinned. So in other words, you have the ability, even though you are born a sinner, by nature, you also have the ability to sin or not to sin. So what am I saying? Listen, when the moment you get saved, the moment you get saved, the moment you accept Christ through faith and receive His grace, that spirit on the inside of you is regenerated and it is alive to God and you get a new nature and that nature is the nature of Christ. Can I hear an amen? And so therefore, 
that old nature, the nature of Adam that wants to sin, is crucified. It's dead because you've got a new nature in Christ. But it doesn't take care of the personal, individual sin that you have the capability of doing even after salvation. Salvation deals with the nature. Salvation takes care of your Adamic nature. But it doesn't take care of you making a choice to sin. You can still sin. By nature, you can have the nature of Christ. But you can still make the choice to sin. You see, all sin, all sin, has a natural consequence and it has a spiritual consequence. I said that briefly last week, but it's important that we see that. It has a natural consequence and a spiritual consequence. When you become born again... Salvation deals with the spiritual consequences of sin. It deals with us spiritually. But it doesn't remove the natural consequences of sin. So just because you get saved doesn't mean that you're going to be delivered from prison because you did something wrong. Well, I'm preaching real good up in here. It doesn't mean because you get saved and born again that you don't have to deal with the spouse that you married that you knew you shouldn't have married in the first place. Can somebody help this preacher preach tonight? Salvation deals with the spiritual cause. It delivers you from the penalty of sin. It takes you from judgment and it brings you into the, the kingdom of light. It trans, uh, transports you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are dead and now you're made alive. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. But it does not deal with the natural consequences of your sin that you did. And that is why people like to give up and say, well, I guess it doesn't work because I love Jesus and I got saved, but why am I still have to deal with all this? Because you made a decision to do it. That's why you got to deal with it, because you did it. Now, you're delivered from hell, but you might have to go through a little bit of hell here. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? You're delivered from the penalty. You're delivered from the judgment of sin. But that doesn't mean because you made a decision here that you don't have to deal with the consequences. You might have to deal with the consequences. Now, sometimes I've seen in my life, God in his mercy and his sovereignty works things out that people escape such things. And somebody say, praise the Lord. But that's in his grace and his mercy. And sometimes things work out like that. And we praise God for that. Sometimes it don't. Because we've got to pay the consequences of our sin. And we want God to be merciful to us. And spare us from the consequences. Sin ultimately separates us from God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. Isn't that what it does? It, sin puts a barrier between God and man. The Bible says in Isaiah 59 verse 1, look at it. Isaiah 59 verse number 1, I, the prophet Isaiah said clearly in Isaiah 59 verse 1, he says that sin will separate us. Behold, the Lord is at, at hand, is not, the Lord's hand is not too shortened that it cannot save, neither is his, his ear heavy that he cannot hear. Verse number two, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. That's what sin does. Sin separates you from God. Sin separates you, separates your fellowship from God. Sin puts a barrier between you and God. That's why 
That's why, that's why when we repent of our sin, when we come to Christ and we begin to repent of our sin, what begins to happen? The Bible says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, this is a just extra scripture here, Acts 3, 19, this is what happens when you do repent. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that you, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So guess what? When you repent of your sin, there is a spiritual cleansing. It feels like you've taken a bath. There's this refreshing from the Lord when you repent of your sin. But as long as you hide your sin, it separates you from God and you become distant from God. Listen, listen, look at, look at this preacher. When you sin... You don't break the covenant. You become out of fellowship with Christ. You're still his son. You're still his daughter. You're just out of fellowship with him. So when we sin, we we, we come out of fellowship with Christ and our sin separates us from God. And what does God do when a Christian sins? He he disciplines in you. He, he, He corrects you. Because of your sin. He is not going to let sin go unpunished if you do not judge yourself. If you don't judge yourself, if you don't take care of it, God will judge the sin in your life. He will correct you like a father corrects his child. Psalm 66 verse 18, sin separates us. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me, Lord. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter, or excuse me, of Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Somebody say praise the Lord. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that that, that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. You know what Christ did at salvation? He broke down the wall that's between you and God. And ladies and gentlemen, you have the ability to put the wall back up if if you sin. You put the wall back up when you sin. So you know what salvation does? I love this scripture in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. When salvation is occurring in your life, This is what happens. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having it nailed to the cross. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So when you become converted, when you become saved, you know what Christ does? Christ cancels the certificate of debt that was against you. Boy, that would make a Baptist shout right there. I said, when you come to Jesus, he cancels the certificate of debt against you and he rips it up and says, you're forgiven. Hallelujah. Can somebody wake up tonight and say amen? That's what he does. He he rips the certificate of debt against you. He says, you're forgiven. You know what man does? Man cannot pay that debt. Man uses religion. Man uses good deeds. Man uses morality to try to get to God. 
But remember, His mark is perfection, and you can never get there by yourself. That's why Christ canceled the debt against you. Forgave you. Man uses all kinds of things. But you know what the prophet said in Isaiah 64, verse 6? Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. He said it this way. The prophet said, but we are like, we are like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Stop there. You know what the prophet is saying? All your good deeds, they're like filthy rags. And to, be, to have a proper translation of this, rags is, is the word which means, um, how should I say this without being, it's, um, it's a woman's monthly cycle rags. That's what it is. He says like that, all your, all your good deeds, all you're trying to get to God is just filthy rags. He says, you're like a leaf. You just fade like a leaf. He says, your iniquities is like the wind. It's taking you away. He says, you can't get to God yourself. And that's what religion does. Religion teaches us. We do these things to get to God, but the only way we can get to God is through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His payment for our sin. Can I hear an amen? Romans chapter 4, verse number 1. Romans chapter 4, verse number 1. Romans chapter 4, verse number 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified or saved by works, he has nothing to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or imputed to him righteousness. Guess what? Abraham couldn't get to God by his works, and the Scripture tells us that it was imputed to him righteousness because he believed. How do you get to God? You believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and guess what He does? He imputes unto you righteousness. He says to you, you are holy. He says you are justified. He says you are sanctified. But God, you don't know what I did, but you believe in me, and if you believe in me, you are holy before my throne. That's how it works. Now you say, well, preacher, what about good works? Oh, you should do good works. After you're saved... A, fruit, a tree should bear good fruit. Because if you really got the root taken care of, your fruit's going to show. Don't tell me you've taken care of the root if you don't have no fruit. So there's going to be some fruit. People say, well, don't judge me, don't judge me. I'd rather people judge me than to me to stand before God and have God Almighty judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Well, you better get used to it, sister, because we're all going to be in the hands of a God who's going to judge us all. My brother and my sister, I'd rather have you judge me than God himself judge me. The bottom line is, is if you're converted, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If you're still acting like your old ways, you ain't saved. All you got is an emotional experience on a Sunday morning because you got a free gift at the door at the Connection Center and you just got scared because you didn't want to go to hell, but there was no conversion really happened in your soul. 
When you're truly converted, you are a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. There is a new desire inside of you to serve God. This is not scripture, but I think it's pretty cool. Somebody's once said, an old, old Puritan preacher said, I know who gets saved on Sunday morning, he said. I know if they really got saved, if they show up on Sunday night. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but hey, you know, it was good. It was a good, it was a good thought from that preacher, you know. Man cannot pay the debt. At our very best effort, we fall short. So what is salvation? Salvation, number one, is the work of God done for man. It's what it is. That's what salvation is. It's the work of God done for mankind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who was reconciled to us himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, it's God's work. God was in Christ reconciling the world. That's God's work. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Look at the story of Lydia, the, color, the seller of purple. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. I want you to look at the work of God in this woman's life. Now there was a certain woman in Lydia who heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart and heeded the things by Paul. It is the Lord's work. You can't make somebody get saved. It is God's work done for humanity. God has to do it. God has to open people's hearts. The Bible says her heart was open to the gospel. And she heeded the words of the Apostle Paul. What about John chapter 6 verse 65? And he said, therefore I have said to you that no man could come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. In other words, salvation is a God thing. God does it. What about Titus chapter 3, verse 5? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not by your works, but it's according to His mercy that saved us. So salvation is a work of God done for you. It's a gift. It's a gift. Number two, salvation is a free gift to the entire world. It's a free gift to the entire world. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Acts chapter 10, verse number 34. It's a free gift to the entire world. It's a free gift to the entire world. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality concerning the Gentiles and Jews and their salvation. He says, there is no partiality. God's going to save us all. God wants to save us all. What about Romans chapter 3 and verse number 24? Romans chapter 3. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Can somebody raise your hand and thank God it's a free gift tonight. It's a free gift. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 7. Salvation is a free gift. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse number 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift. It is the gift of God. 
Somebody say it's a gift of God. What about Romans chapter 5, verse number 14? Look, look at the word gift in this discourse. Romans chapter 5, verse 14. He over and over exemplifies to us that salvation is a free gift. Verse number 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who have not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Look at verse 15. But the free gift, somebody shall free gift, is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift, somebody say gift, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 16, and the gift, somebody say the gift, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift, somebody say free gift, which comes from many offenses resulted in justification. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through one man, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Do you see how many times the Apostle Paul said, free gift, free gift, free gift, because salvation is a free gift. It's to all. It's a free gift. So what is salvation? Salvation is the work of God done for mankind. Number two, salvation is a free gift to the entire world. And number three, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Now, I know we live in a postmodern world where people think that you can get to God by many different ways. And I hope to believe that all of us know that to be true tonight. But if we don't, let me just clarify what the gospel says. That you cannot get to God unless you go through Jesus Christ. You can't go through a church. you got to go through Jesus. Come on, somebody. You can't go through a bishop. You've got to go through Jesus. You can't go through baptism. You've got to go through Jesus. You can't go through communion. You've got to go through Jesus. If you don't go through Jesus, you will never inherit eternal life. Somebody say amen. It is through Jesus. But, oh, preacher, what about all these people that don't hear about Jesus? I said salvation is only through Jesus. It's only through Jesus. It's only through his work. And if, if we think it's through some, why do you even attend church if you believe it's by someone else? I mean, seriously, if you're not willing to die for it, then they don't believe it. It's through Jesus. But they were such a good person. Hold on, back it up, back it up. God's mark is perfection. So their good works are like filthy rags. So good works is not a button that you put on your shirt and say, oh, they were a good person, so therefore they must went to heaven. You cannot go to heaven unless you go through Jesus. There are people in other religions that fast and pray more than you will ever fast and pray. 
There are other good people in other religions that put you to shame and put me to shame with all the giving they do, all the praying they do, all the meditation they do. They put us to shame, and they are good people that supposedly read from good works that good people have handed down to them to do. But the God of this world has blinded the hearts of people that they would not believe the gospel. The gospel is through Jesus Christ. But I go to God. No, through Jesus. You can't get to God unless you get through Jesus. He that hath not the Son hath not the Father. But I pray to the truth. If you don't pray through Jesus to the Father, you cannot be saved. You cannot. Jesus is the way of salvation. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle made it clear that there is salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given by men where they must be saved. Salvation is through Christ alone. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I'll pray to the Father, and he will give you another. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through me. That's pretty plain. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts chapter 16 verse 31 further illustrates our point. So they said, believe on the Lord. Remember the jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. So what is salvation? Salvation is the work of God done for man. Number two, it is the free gift of God for the entire world. Number three, it is only through Jesus Christ. Number four, it removes the barriers between God and man. I've already read Scripture and explained that. It removes the barrier between God and man. And number five, salvation results in an obvious evidence to those who receive it. It's an obvious evidence. It's none of this, well, I wonder if they are saved. <laughs> it's an obvious evidence that they've been converted. If you have truly been saved, there is an obvious evidence that you have been converted. You are, listen, the scripture says you are a new creature. I didn't say a perfect creature. I said you're a new creature. That means there is a difference between the life you have now than your former life. Not a perfect creature, but a new creature. In other words, there's a difference between your former life and the life you have now. I, the Lord gave me something to give to someone last week, and I want to share it with you. They impressed on my heart to tell this person this, and I want to tell you because I think it's... You know, it was applicable to that person, but it's applicable to us. The Bible says that David had a heart after God. It nowhere said that David had the heart of God. David sinned. David really messed up. He didn't have the heart of God. But he had a heart that was after God. And listen, you can mess up and you can struggle with sin, but the point of the matter is, you better have a heart after God and not after your sin. Can I hear an amen? Pursue after Christ and pursue after God. You see, salvation is the work of God done for man. 
It is the free gift of God to the entire world. It is only through Christ. It removes the barriers between God and man. And salvation results in an obvious evidence to those who receive it. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking to Peter here, speaking to believers, he says, as newborn babes, that in itself tells you that believers have a progression of growth. As a newborn babe, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow by it. So Christians should grow. They should develop as believers. So there should be this evidence of growing in your life. In closing tonight, since Wednesday nights are designed for theological training and in-depth of the Word of God, I am not hesitant to tell you different schools of thought concerning salvation. Because that's why you're here tonight. You want to learn, you want to grow, you want to expand. And tonight I want to look at three different schools of thought concerning salvation. Concerning salvation. There are three groups of thought concerning salvation. Okay, And you have probably heard of them before. And maybe you, don't, you didn't even know what branch or, or school of thought you fall under. We know that the Bible is perfect and the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. But our interpretation of Scripture is not always perfect. So therefore, Scripture has been interpreted in many different ways in at least three different categories concerning salvation. I want to give you the three categories or what I call the school of thought and then I want to tell you the interpretation of what we firmly believe that the Scripture teaches. Okay? Number one, it is called Calvinism. Everybody shout Calvinism. Everybody, now don't lose me, just stay with me. Calvinism. Somebody shout Calvinism. This school of thought comes from a preacher or a pastor or a reformer, a French theologian in the 16th century. His name was John Calvin. John Calvin. John Calvin taught this. This is during the Protestant Reformation, which we're getting ready to celebrate 500 years in October. 1517 to 2017 is 500 years that we have separated from the Roman church. Can somebody say amen? And so uh, John Calvin is one of those Protestant reformers in the 16th century, and he had a thought or a school of thought concerning salvation. Basically, he taught this, that the Scripture teaches predestination of the elect before the foundation of the world. Or he taught that there are only a certain, there are only a certain elect that will be saved. Or I could say he taught that salvation uh, or Jesus' atonement was only for a few. It wasn't for the world. Okay? And uh, he said those that who are truly saved, those who are truly in the elect, will never fall out of salvation. As a matter of fact, they'll be saved to the end. Once saved, always saved. To the end. You'll never lose your salvation if God has elected you, God has saved you, and in His predestination He has set you on the course of salvation. You'll never lose your salvation. Calvinism came up, or John Calvin, well they came up with a five point uh, to his theology. And that's what we call the tulip theory. Tulip theory. T-U 
T-U-L-I-P, T-U-L-I-P, the tulip theory. The first, this is the first main doctrine of Calvinism, which we agree with. We agree with this. This is called total depravity. What we mean by that is this. Every person is born a sinner. Do you agree with that? And people are not inclined to love God all by themselves. Rather, people are inclined to serve their own interest. We are by nature sinners because of what Adam and Eve have done in the garden. And we are unable to make that choice to follow God. Total, the reason they use the word total is because sin affected every part of a person. Physically, mentally, financially, every every part of a person's whole being, sin has affected. So there's total depravity of the whole human race. And it's impossible for that person to make a decision to serve Christ or come to God through Christ unless the Spirit draws them. We agree with that. Total depravity. You, a second second, uh, statement of belief that they adhere to in Calvinism is unconditional election. Unconditional election, which means this, that God has chosen from eternity those who He will extend mercy to and those who He will not extend mercy to. In other words, God already knows who's going to be saved, so therefore He extends mercy to those and those who are not saved, there's no mercy extended to them. So God has chosen from eternity who's going to be saved. And those people He has extended mercy to and those who are not saved He has not extended mercy to. The chosen will receive salvation through Christ alone because the Spirit draws them. So, number one, total depravity. We're all born into sin. We're all depraved. We're all sinners. Can't make the choice unless the Holy Spirit draws us and awakens us to the Spirit of God. Now then, there's the unconditional election, which means this. There is a certain group called the elect that's going to be saved. Only a few will be saved. Everybody else will be damned. God will extend mercy to some, and God's not going to extend mercy. There is the elect, predestined to serve God. Right? Then you have L, limited atonement. Now, that does not mean that Jesus' power is limited, or His blood is limited. That's not what they mean. In other words, they mean by limited atonement that the sins of the elect were atoned for by His death. That means... Only the few that God is predestined to save, only the few, it's only the few that His blood will atone for. For instance, they use one of their famous scriptures that they use, I I think it's uh, uh, Matthew chapter 26, and I stand to be corrected if I can find it real quick. Matthew chapter 26, let me see here. Uh, yes, this is, one of, this is just one of many that they try to use. Matthew 26, verse number 28. Look at this phrase that the writer of Matthew points out. Matthew 26, verse 28. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Nowhere did it say for all. So according to them, his atonement is only for many, and it's not for all. So limited atonement, a limited atonement. Now you have 
not only limited atonement, the sins of the elect are atoned for by his death, but you have irresistible grace, which means this. When God chooses to save someone, that individual will be saved. Whether you preach to him or not, whether a missionary is sin or not, that person will be saved. If God is predestined for someone to be saved, they're going to be saved, and they can't resist the grace of God. The Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. They will be saved. And since they will be saved, they will preserve to the end. They can't resist. In other words, they almost don't have a free choice. It's like if God has predestined Micah to be saved, he's going to be saved whether anybody preaches to him or not. If anybody comes to him, he's going to get saved because God foreknew and God predestined Micah to be saved. And if people go to hell... It's because they were not predestined to be saved. They're not the elect. And the last thing that they taught was the perseverance of the saints. In other words, they believe that those who God has called to be saved, or the elect, will continue in faith until the end. In other words, once you're saved, you're always saved. To the very end. You can't lose your salvation even if you tried. You're always saved to the very end. Now, there are some Christians, this is primarily uh, found among Presbyterians or some Baptists that believes this, uh, you know, but the Presbyterian church is probably a, a big proponent of Calvinism. Now, you may sit and say, well, why do you even send missionaries? Well, the reason their stance for that is we still preach the gospel because we want the elect to come to awareness that they need Christ. So Calvinism, that's a school of thought. As Christ Point Church, we do not adhere to Calvinism. We do not believe in the doctrine and the tenets of Calvinism. We do believe in total depravity, but we do believe that a person has a free choice. They can resist the grace of God and we do believe that just because you are saved, you can apostatize your faith or walk away from your faith. And I hear an amen. So we do not adhere to Calvinism. But since this is Wednesday night and we're growing in our faith, I want you to be aware that this is a school of thought in the Christian church. Is that right? Everybody say, that's right. Number two, the second school of thought is Arminianism. This comes from a Dutch reformer, in the, also in the 16th century, and he taught that salvation, although it's from Christ alone and through Christ alone, that there is a free choice involved in salvation. He taught the doctrine of prevenient grace, that grace goes before us, that the Holy Spirit works on the hearts of people, but yet people have the choice to reject the grace of God. They believe, number one, Arminianism believes, number one, in total depravity. We, we agree with the Calvinists that we're deprived. Without the grace of God, we, we will never be saved. We believe that every person is born a sinner by nature because of what Adam and Eve did. And people are not inclined to love God. They're inclined to love their own interest. That's by nature. You're not inclined to love God unless the Spirit of God works on your heart you won't come to a saving 
faith in Christ. We're all deprived. We're all fallen. We're all broken in our sin. So we agree with that. But number two, this is where, this is where we start to differ. Atonement is intended for all. Remember? Calvinism says it's just for some. It's the elect who God has predestined. But Arminianism states this, that atonement is for every person. All people have an opportunity for salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to those who believe. So there is a choice that we have to play in this. So atonement is intended for all of us. Number three, that salvation, that Jesus' death satisfies God's justice. You see, God's justice is that you would have to pay a penalty for your sin. Now, in order to satisfy God's justice, because He's holy and you're not, you broke the law, so you have to pay. That could be found in every court of law in America. You break the law, you've got to pay for it. God is a judge, you broke the law, you've got to pay for it. And the way that we the way that we satisfy God's justice is one or two ways. Number one, either you adhere to all of the law and don't break it. Or number two, God imputes upon you righteousness because of what His Son did. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we tried to obey the law, and none of us could obey the law. We've fallen short of the mark. So therefore, we are in the judge, which is our Father. There is a judge. And what He has done, He has imputed on you righteousness because of what His Son did at the cross of Calvary. So therefore, Jesus' death satisfies the justice of God. Number four, grace is resistible. In other words, Calvinism teaches that grace is irresistible. If God has called you to be the elect, if God has called you to be saved, you can't resist it. You're going to be saved. But Armenianism teaches that grace is resistible, that you can resist the grace of God. The Holy Spirit can pull you. The Holy Spirit can woo you to a place of confession and repentance. But because you are a free moral agent, you can resist the grace of God and resist the salvation offer that He offers to you. And I hear an amen. It's resistible. The grace that acts upon people can be rejected by your own free will. Number five, election is conditional. In other words, get this, and I quote, this is what they believe, God alone determines who will be saved, and His determination is that all who believe in Christ and faith will be saved. So the determination is that all will be saved. Every person God's will is that they should be saved. But it is conditional based upon your response to the payment that He paid on Calvary. You've got to make a choice. Number six, Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer. In other words, Abraham believed God, it was imputed. What does it mean to impute it? It means to pardon, to put upon in other words, the moment you believe, God pardons you from your penalty of your sin. You are delivered from hell and judgment. You're delivered from it. You're saved from it. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. And lastly, they believe that eternal security is also conditional. 
In other words, you can lose your salvation. There are scriptures who in, that indicate that a person who once knew Christ could walk away from his or her faith. Arminianism teaches that, that somebody can apostatize their faith. In other words, they can walk away from the faith by a deliberate, willful rejection of Christ. By a deliberate, willful rejection of Christ. A deliberate, willful rejection of Christ. You can walk away from your salvation. So do we believe once saved and always saved? We simply believe that you can be saved as long as you continue to put your faith in Christ alone. You can stay saved. But the moment you walk away from your faith in Christ, you could lose your salvation by doing a deliberate, willful act against Christ on a continual basis. So, as a church, we acknowledge that some believe in Calvinism, but we believe that the interpretation of Scripture best fits the doctrine of Arminianism. How many would agree with Pastor Josh that we believe that? Next week, we're going to look at Scripture to back this up. Okay, I'm just giving you a brief overall review over this. Thirdly, there's a third view that's prominent, especially in postmodernism, and that's called universalism. This view has always been around since early Christianity. It's become more prominent within our day, and universalism states that Jesus' death on the cross, His death on the cross paid the sin for everyone in the world, and everybody will be atoned for. Everybody is, is going to be saved. Okay? They may not even know they're going to be saved, but in the end, everyone will be saved. Jesus' act of atonement saves the world. Whether you accept it or whether you reject it, His death saves the world. So they even teach that Satan himself, in the end, will be a believer because His death atoned the whole world. And every person, in the end, will be a believer because His death made a way for all of us to be atoned and all of us to be right before God. Whether you accept it or whether you reject it, you're still made right before God. We don't believe in universalism because it takes away the free moral choice of individualism. Faith has a whole lot to do with your choice. This doesn't really give anybody a choice. Carlton Pearson the great Pentecostal preacher, you know, in the 90s, no, I think it was 2000, he didn't fall into sexual sin, he didn't fall into greed, he fell into heresy. He fell into false doctrine. And he started propagating this doctrine in his church. He ran thousands of people. When he started preaching the doctrine of universalism, he lost his church, lost his TV ministry, lost it all. Now he's, in, he's still in Tulsa, and uh, he says that, you know, the Buddhists, the Muslims, the Hindus, it doesn't matter what religion you are, they're all going to be saved because of what Christ has done on the cross. Whether they know it or whether they don't know it, in the end, His blood, His atonement saves us all. Universalism. That's a nutshell what they believe. So, ladies and gentlemen, 
What is salvation? Salvation is the work of God done for mankind. Salvation is the work of God done for mankind. It is the free gift of God to the whole entire world. It is only through Jesus Christ removes the barriers between God and man. Obviously, when you become born again, there's a obvious evidence that you've received salvation. How many enjoyed the Word of God tonight?